Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Canon Press. This week's episode is a talk entitled, It's All in Gerard, Man, by Douglas Wilson. From the Grace Agenda 2021 conference, All the Ugly Isms. Listen to the full conference for free on the Canon app. The title of this talk is All in Gerard, Man, and uh, so perhaps I should start by explaining that. Uh, René Gerard was a French polymath, scholar in many areas, who wrote a series of books explaining how mimetic desire was the key to everything. I'm not a Girardian purist, I'm not a Girardian absolutist, and so I wouldn't go so far as to say it explains absolutely everything, but I would say that Girard explains way more about how all of us tick than we actually wanted him to. Once you see what he's talking about, you start to see it not everywhere and in everything, but you start to see it in a lot of situations. Now, it has become sort of a byword in our family when we see some, what I call a sociological event going down, some interaction, some conflict, some situation developing. It's become sort of a byword in our household where someone will pop off with, it's all in Gerard, man. That's, that's where this comes from. If you want to understand what's going on in the world around you, uh, Gerard is extremely helpful. Now, when you find a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and there are Girardians who explain absolutely everything in, term, in Girardian terms, and that's always dangerous. You wind up deny, you're becoming a complete pacifist and denying the substitutionary atonement, and things like that are not good. But it's still uh, important to recognize that he has contributed a lot of insights into how day-to-day uh, -day dynamics between people work. Now, one of the illustrations that I use to, to describe uh, uh, these Gerard Girardian dynamics would be this. Imagine a room, uh, a playroom, with 20 toys scattered throughout the room, 19 of them on the floor, and the only way you can tell these toys apart is by a little tiny serial number on the bottom. They're virtually identical. And you've got one of the toys being played, played with by a child, preferably a boy, preferably around two years old. It's not because Girardian dynamics are uh, at play in two-year-old boys. It's just that they're one category of human being that doesn't hide anything. <laughs> We're all doing this all the time, at all ages, but with the two-year-old boy, it's all exoskeletal. It's all out, outside. You can see it working. So he's playing with his toy, and he's, he's on the verge of being sick of it. He's on the verge of ready to throw it down in disgust. He's about, he's about done with that toy. Introduce into the room another player, and you have a society. Preferably another boy, preferably about the same age. And you introduce this other boy, and this other boy comes into the room with 20 toys, and he wants to play with the most valuable toy in there. Which one is that? <laughs> well, clearly, he, the only, he can't check the serial numbers. The only thing he has to go on is which one is currently being valued. Which is the most valuable one? Well, the one being valued. That's the one that this other boy is playing with. So he comes in and he reaches for it. And you have instant conflict. Because this, the boy that was playing with it was about ready to put it down. He was about sick of it. 
But when this other boy comes in and starts valuing it, he thinks, whoa, maybe this has more value than I thought. And so he clutches it and you have conflict. Now notice that this conflict is the result not of dissimilarity, but rather similarity. Secularists want you to believe that conflict, human conflict arises because we don't understand one another. We, the, the way we resolve international tensions and the way we can solve uh, wars and conflicts around the globe is we need more diplomacy, we need more talks, we need more conversations, we need more student exchange programs, we need more uh, international food fairs where we sample one another's spicy foods. And when we do that, we're going to realize in some great we are the world moment how much we have in common. And we'll all come together. We're not human beings and Klingons. It's not humans and orcs. We're all human beings, and we all come together, and it's a group hug. That is the secularist idea of how you make peace. Gerard points out that conflict doesn't come from dissimilarity. Conflict comes from similarity. Conflict comes from how, how alike we all are. Let me go over that. Conflict arises from shared tastes. Those two boys come into conflict. Why? because of how similar they are. They don't come into conflict because of how dissimilar they are. Let me give you another illustration of this. And this is the sort of thing that if I'm telling someone at home after it happened during the day, it's the sort of thing that would provoke, it's all in Gerard, man. Suppose I'm talking to a young man, usually in the springtime, NSA, junior or senior, and he comes in to see me because he wants to know if I think it's wise for him to contact Susie Q's dad. She has caught his eye. He's been admiring her from afar for a year or more. And should I call her dad? And we talk about it, and I give him advice as far as, uh, as, far as I can. And, you know, we talk about it. Okay, that's a sort of standard issue kind of thing. But I can't tell you how many times I've been in that situation where, and this is, uh, some of the details vary, but I've been in that situation, talked to a young man about Susie Q, and I can't tell him that I was having the very same conversation last week about the same girl with his roommate. <laughs> and he's like, you can just see it coming. You know, this train is this train. Now, is this, hap is this happening because of how dissimilar these young men are? No, it's happening because they both decided to go to a small liberal arts college. They're both pursuing the same course of study. They're interested in the girl. Uh, you know, they, they admire the same sort of thing. And it's not a coincidence. We are mimetic creatures. We imitate one another. And because of that imitation, our desires converge. And when they converge and we don't know what, what's happening, we collide. Okay, that's, that's one of the things that Gerard points out, conflict arises from similarities, not from dissimilarities. Once you see the hidden springs of human action in imitative or mimetic desire, it's awfully hard to turn that insight off. You start seeing it everywhere. This is especially true in our generation, which wants to claim that originality is an artesian well that springs up in every human heart. We want to think that every person is a font of originality, and when you want to be original, if you want to be a creative artist, if you want to be a writer, if you want to be a painter, if you want to do interpretive dance, what do you do? You dig down deep, and you come up with your originality stuff, right? That's how you become original. But 
We are created in the image of God. The Bible tells us that we are built as reflectors. We're, we're all mirrors. We're built in the image of God. We are moons, not suns. We are moons, not suns. We are designed to reflect his glory. The fall shattered the mirror. The fall bent the mirror. The fall affected what the mirror is pointed at. But it doesn't change the fact that we are mirrors. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, therefore, as dearly loved children, be imitators of God. As dearly loved children, be imitators of God. What we are built to imitate. Now, what this means is originality, actual originality, comes from imitating honestly, forthrightly, and not from refusing to imitate at all. Refusing to imitate claiming to be a sun and not a moon, refusing to imitate, only results in dishonest imitation. Imitating without acknowledgement, citing without footnotes. Now, I think that we, different generations, struggle with this in different ways, and I think we're on the cusp of another, yet another change, but this is, this is how uh, different we are from how it was in the 50s. Let's say, try to imagine a conversation between a young woman who is going out to the dance and she's having a conversation with her parents about, uh, a, that circles around whether or not she's going to the dance dressed, quote unquote, like that. Are you going to go to the dance dressed like that? In 1952, there'd be this conversation and the child would argue, the, the teenage daughter would argue her case this way. Mom, dad, you can't let me stick out. You can't, you can't make me be the weirdo at the dance. All the girls are going to be dressed like this. You, you have to let me fit in. I want to fit in. I want to be one of the kids. Right? I, I just want to be one of the gang. Right? Why can't I conform? That's how it was in 1952. And you have all the poodle skirts and all the, you know, that's how that happened. The converse, same, same conversation goes on today. And mom and dad don't want her to go to the dance dressed quote unquote, like that. And, but the argument is completely different. The argument is the daughter is at this point is saying, mom, dad, you've got to let me be me. You've got to let me express my individuality. You've, you have to let me, why, why, why do you um, put these demands on me? I want to express myself. I, I want to express my unique individuality, parentheses, by looking like every other girl to dance. <laughs> In other words, you don't have a big diversity of how everybody looks. What you have is a difference in the conversation. It's a difference in the catechesis. All right? Back then, everybody was conforming, and they said, we are conforming. All right? We are conforming. Uh, now, people are saying uh, they, they are actually conforming, but they're claiming to be their own radical individualist. Now, I suspect, I think that this, I, I mentioned that we're on the, this came up in a, a uh, question in the break at the at the other session, and that is, I think we're on the cusp of a, uh, cycling back into the uh, the, uh, the other system, which this whole masking demand for com conformity has brought out. Everybody now is lurching into a fierce con conforming in, in the name of conforming. You've got to be like everybody else. So we may be shifting back, but for this last generation, we've been expressing radical individuality by trying to look like everybody else. And the, the, I don't know if it was a regional beer, but a, a few years ago, 
there was a beer company in the Northwest here called Red Dog Beer. And their motto underneath the Red Dog, the driving around trucks on the side of the truck, uh, said, sometimes you just have to be your own dog. And I, I look at that, and you, sh you need to look at things like that and learn wisdom from beer trucks. <laughs> You've got to be your own dog. And you want to think, look, you're driving this beer around the country in trucks. There are thousands of bottles that you're dealing with. You made this beer in vats the size of Rhode Island, and you want me to drink a bottle of that beer so I can be my own dog. What are you trying to sell me? Yeah, well, you, they're trying to sell me a beer and a certain way of identifying myself. Right, that's, the, that's the catechesis. All right, so our generation, which may be passing, but our generation has valued not originality, but a lack of originality that flatters itself into believing that it's being original. So let's start with the individual level, and I want to build up to <coughs> the way things are culturally. I want to build up to our current cultural crisis. Let's start by considering this issue on a personal level. When a relationship goes south on you, and the whole thing seems inexplicable, the place to turn for wisdom is James chapter 4. Where do all these out-of-the-blue conflicts come from, for pity's sake? And of course, all the initial troubleshooting, all the initial diagnostics that you run, ought not to be trying to figure out what went wrong with that other guy. Let's say you've got a, a friend for years and everything suddenly went south. Let's say Yodi and Syntica and Philippians got along very well for a long time and then they had a falling out. Or there's someone you used to get along with great on the elder board and now it, it fell apart on you. Or your best friend from college suddenly went weird. And you're, and you're asking yourself, where did this come from? Why am I suddenly quarreling with this person? We didn't used to quarrel. It can't be personalities because we've had the same personalities since high school. And we've always gotten along. Where, where did this come from? Well, it seems to me that when you ask that question, where is this quarrel coming from? You ought to turn to the chapter in the Bible that starts out with, where do, where do quarrels and fights arise from among you? <laughs> Just a suggestion. When someone gets a skewed view of you, and everything was, fam everything was going famously for a while, but all of a sudden, the shape of your head isn't right. Everything you do tries to, that you, you do to try to fix it doesn't fix it, makes it worse. Nothing seems able to fix it. The temptation is always to, have, to try to fix it with one more conversation. One last time, another explanation, another conversation, another appeal. We're all, uh, we're all of us adults here with driver's licenses. Why can't we fix it? This shouldn't be so hard. And yet, at the end of all your appeals, whether or not you have gray hair, you feel like, you're, you, you, feel like you just came out of a hard relationship day back in junior high school. This thing is just demented. Where did it come from? Once someone starts to see you from that tangled perspective, and also keep in mind that you might be that person seeing someone else from a tangled perspective, always a possibility, once you start, someone starts to see you from this tangled perspective, reason won't fix it. Reason won't fix it. This is not a problem with an argument. This is not an argument that, that didn't go well. This is not a syllogism. You, you, you can't fix it by fixing the syllogism. Neither will an appeal to facts 
or the need for maturity. The more facts you have, the more slam dunk correct you are, the, more, the, the worse it's likely to get. Trying to fix things that way is the ultimate exercise in futility. This person's perspective of you is similar to the perspective that the family cat might have in the laundry room after foolishly getting into the dryer to cozy up in the warm towels. He did not think that somebody was going to think that another five minutes on the towels was going to be necessary. They slammed the door and hit the switch. Trying to fix this kind of thing with a rational appeal is like throwing a couple of downy fabric softeners in there as an aid and comfort for the cat. <laughs> Let's try another one. The engine, the engine that is driving all of the commotion is envy, competition, hunger, lust, mimetic desire. Where do these conflicts come from? Scripture tells us it all arises from our imitative wants. All of it arises from our imitative wants. So how can this kind of thing be fixed? Can it be fixed? Of course, this is a fallen world, and there's not a nice little automatic solution to every relationship problem. But the Holy Spirit is loose in the world, and one of the things he is doing is the vast and glorious work of reconciliation. But this reconciliation is always based on the bold proclamation of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on a bloody cross. That is the only answer to this problem. That is the only answer. So if you start to see this is another Gerardian thing, one of the things Gerard points out is that human societies, churches, extended families, uh, towns, countries, cultures, are like uh, water moisture. They build up into a thunderhead. And when they build up into a thunderhead, there's an electrical charge in that thunderhead that has to go somewhere. And what uh, different, un different systems of unbelief have tried to manage how that uh, electrical charge is released for that society in some sort of cathartic, cathartic way. This is one of the reasons why nations go to war. They've got a, Gerard called this a sacrificial crisis. It builds up, and then you need some sort of enemy to vent on. You need the bolt to go somewhere, and you don't want to, to tear your own society apart, so you invade Poland. Oh, another, in ancient Greece, uh, they had a class, they had a, a group of, um, a stable, really, of outcasts, homeless guys, various derelicts, and they were called pharmakoi, pharmakoi. And, that, and when they, a sacrificial crisis got to a certain point, they would bring out one of the pharmakoi and stone him to death in order to vent, in order to release that cathartic charge. And that, so it begin, it, one of the things is war, which is one form of human sacrifice. Another uh, is an actual human sacrifice, like killing one of the pharmakoi. Then as time progressed, they tried to fix it. Well, let's substitute animal sacrifice for human sacrifice and see if that still releases the charge. And then they substituted athletic competition, uh, which is what our Super Bowl competition, you know, the, the gaudiness and the spectacle of halftime at the Super Bowl. This is all designed to build up a cathartic charge, get everybody whipped up, and then release the charge in a way that doesn't leave a smoking pile of rubble afterwards. But the only real solution is the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. So true reconciliation always has blood all over it. Nothing rational about it at all. 
So let's step it up a notch and talk about that. I'm, I was talking about this relationship conflict with a friend or a neighbor or someone at the church, but let's step it up and, and consider our, our culture-wide situation. Let's kick it up a notch. So how does, it, how does this apply to our season of cultural madness? The world's gone mad. The world has gone crazy. How does this apply? Envy, lust, jealousy, malice are not just individual phenomena. They also have corporate manifestations. Men and women, slaves and free, Jews or Greeks, barbarians or Scythians, all of them had their histories, complaints, injuries, grievances, enmities, and so on. Colossians 3.11. Groups sin against one another, and outside of Christ, every group must of necessity do so. It doesn't matter how you divide the human race up. It doesn't matter if you divide us up into two tribes, male and female, or Jew and Greek, or um, racial groups, or uh, national groups. It doesn't matter how you divide the groups up. Every one of those groups will have sinned against the other groups. And the, sin, the groups sinned against will know exactly what you did, and they will have, in turn, sinned against um, that other group. Everybody's got a point. When it comes to the hostility, hostility and enmity we show toward one another, everyone has a point. Everyone has an argument. So all the isms, all the isms we are addressing in the course of this conference, socialism, feminism, environmentalism, uh, Marxism, racism, communism, and the granddaddy of them all, egalitarianism, are not the intellectual problems that cause certain downstream intellectual mistakes to be made. This is not an intellectual problem. No, the reason they end in rage and blood and fire and bricks through shop windows is because they're not intellectual constructs at all, but rather intellectual rationalizations for sin. They're intellectual rationalizations for sin. So let me say this again. These constructs are nothing more than intellectual rationalizations for sin, and the principal sin involved in all of this is the sin of envy. When you look at the turmoil our society is in, you should not think of it as a mixture of honest mistakes with a few sins thrown in. No, the problem is caused by women envying men, blacks envying whites, poor people envying rich people, ugly people envying beautiful people, whites envying blacks, fatherless children envying those whose parents provided for them, and so on. All of this is driven by envy. It's an old-fashioned sin causing old-fashioned problems, and we've put a veneer over the whole thing. And that veneer is all this intellectually sophisticated, you need to do a post-structural analysis of, no, you don't. You need to believe in Jesus who died on the cross and was buried and rose again from the dead. And you need, to knock, you need to repent of your sins and knock it off. So, nothing reveals the toxic state of the American heart in this regard so much as the fact that the word privilege is taken automatically and without challenge as an awful thing or an injustice. Our entire take on this whole subject reeks of sulfur right out of the pit. When the world directs its acid sneers at your privileges, please note that they're trying to make you feel guilty for having been the recipient of the grace of God. That's what they want you to crawl about. They want you to get on all fours and crawl like a whipped dog because God has been kind to you. 
And that is the polar opposite of what God tells you to do. God tells you to be grateful for his kindness to you, to rejoice in what he's given you, and they want you to act like it's a problem. I remember this was a cloud, this is many decades ago, but it was a cloud the size of a man's fist, really, because it, it was the problem that we're facing culture-wide in just a little... I remember reading an article by what we would today call a social justice uh, warrior, and he was, he was talking about how he just put his son to bed, and, and he went downstairs afterwards, and he was feeling guilty. And he, he wasn't confessing the fact that he was feeling guilty. He was right, telling us how, basically, it was right that he was feeling guilty. My son is well-fed. My son went to bed warm and dry. He has a roof over, over his head. He has parents who love him. And this is awful. I feel really bad that my son is privileged. My son is privileged. And what, what's going on? What's going on is the root lie in, in, in all these isms. The root lie is God has given us a zero-sum world. There's a fixed pie. There's a fixed amount of goods. And if one person gets more, that means of necessity, do the math, that someone else gets less. All right, so if someone gets a big piece of pie, someone else gets a smaller piece of pie, which is why rich people are the cause of poor people. That's how the, that's how the thinking goes. That's zero-sum thinking. Now, let me say right off the bat that if you are, uh, you know, in an isolate, you're off on a camping trip, and there's five of you, and there's one pie, um, then that, there, that really is a zero-sum situation. Okay. In that case, a big piece of pie for one guy does mean smaller pieces of pie for everybody else. It's also a zero-sum situation. Think back to the two young men asking about Suzy Q. That's a zero-sum. <laughs> More for Billy means less for Johnny. <laughs> okay. So uh, there are zero-sum situations in the world, but the world itself is not zero-sum. God has given us a world in which the pie grows. The pie grows. The pie is alive. The pie is organic. The whole thing spreads and grows. So, what the world wants you to do, when God has blessed you, God has blessed you, and you are starting to respond the way the word of God says that you ought to respond, which is with gratitude, the world wheels on you and says, you should rather be ashamed. Think about this for a minute. You're wanting, I hope you want, this coming November to have another family Thanksgiving right out of Norman Rockwell. Right? That's a good thing. All the people showed up. All the people were able to make it. You had all these wonderful things on the table. And you're about to say grace. You're about to thank God. And, and a social justice warrior is going to come in and uh, point the bony finger at you and say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Look at all this privilege. And you should say, isn't God good? Isn't God good? Thank you. This is why this is we, call it, we call it Thanksgiving, because we gathered to point at all this stuff. You don't need to point at this stuff. We are pointing at this stuff to give thanks. So there's a key difference here. Well, do you see, and they'll come back at you, but there are people in this world going without. That person over there, he's going without. He's going without. He's going. And Christians ought to say, oh, Let's share. Let's share with him. This is good. Let's give him some. This is a good thing. Let's give him some. I've not, never been 
able to figure out why these people want me to believe that wealth is a cancer and I should spread it. <laughs> no, I mean, if wealth is a cancer, I'm going to do the big guy thing. I'm just going to keep it all here. <laughs> take, take one for the team. Well, that would make The thing that's going on here is when you, when you are, uh, let's say you're flipping, and Christians have been complicit in this kind of thinking. You flip through a Christian uh, magazine and you come to a picture of a child starving somewhere and the copy runs something like, you could feed this child for a dollar and a quarter a day. Or you could turn the page, you sorry excuse for a Christian. <laughs> okay. So you don't want to feel guilty when you turn the page. So, but you're, so you're going to give. You're going to give. Now, why are you going to give? You are going to give to make the guilt go away. That's why you're going to give. You're going to give to make the guilt go away. How much does that cost? About 20 bucks, more or less. You can get the guilt to go away for 20 bucks. And now you can feel good about yourself and turn the page. But if you give because what you have been given is so good and... Yeah, it's privilege, and it's blessing, and it's overflowing, and this is all wonderful, and I want to be, God has given me this, and I want to be like him because I want to imitate him, so I want to be giving too. I want to, God gives to me out of his overflow, I want to learn how to give out of my overflow. You're going to wind up giving a whole lot more over a, you're going to be running a marathon of generosity instead of a short little sprint of guilted generosity. So the central problem is envy. Central problem is envy. We all know that the modern world has gone mad, but I want, to I want you to walk away with the specific name of the problem. The problem of the heart of our madness is envy. Genesis, excuse me, not Genesis, uh, James 4, verses 1 through 3, and James 4, verses 5 and 6. And then it says in Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 3 and 4, A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but the fool's wrath is heavier than them both. Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? Envy is formidable. Envy is a destroyer. The writer of Proverbs begins with an illustration. A heavy stone is hard to pick up. He says the same thing is true of sand. And when a fool gets angry, that is heavier than both or either of them. You should rather have your pickup truck filled with wet sand than to encounter an angry fool. Then, building on that first thought, since we're now at the next level, wrath, he says, is cruel. The synonym, anger, is outrageous, he says. But then he says, what's the capstone? Envy carries everything before it. Envy is therefore a formidable sin. Envy is the sin that is destroying America while we sit here. Envy is the sin that is wrecking our culture. That is the heart. That's the enemy. So... We should make some distinctions. There are some things that you might think would be envy, but they're not. Jealousy is to be possessive of what is lawfully your own. Because we are sinners, we sometimes give way to jealousy for wrong causes or in a wrong manner or an excessive manner. But scripture is clear that jealousy is not inherently sinful. Our God, for example, is a jealous God. His name is jealous, Exodus 20, verse 5, or Exodus 34, 14. That's one thing. So you can have jealousy that that overflows the banks, jealousy that goes too far. That's one problem. 
Or simple covetousness, simple greed, wants what it does not have and wants to have it without reference to God's conditions for having it. The thing that it wants might have been seen in a store or a catalog or a neighbor's driveway. This sin is tantamount to idolatry, Ephesians 5.5, putting a created thing in place of the creator. But envy is more than either of these. It's more than an excessive jealousy, and it's more than simple greed. Envy is far more than simply a lazy or idolatrous desire. Envy is a formidable sin, as I just mentioned, because it combines its own desires for the object, status, money, women, whatever, with a malicious insistence that the other person lose his possession of it. The other person has to lose it. In two places, Paul puts malice and envy cheek by jowl, and this is no accident. In the Bible, when envy moves, violence and coercion are not far off. Acts 7-9, Acts 13-45, Acts 17-5, Matthew 27-18. Envy sharpens its teeth every night. We may therefore define envy as a particular kind of willingness to use violence and coercion to deprive someone of what is lawfully his. And when, when we are watching blatant, overt, smash and grab operations, looting that is justified, you're, you're seeing it naked, on, you know, on display. What matters is that he lose it. What matters is that uh, I destroy, that I hurt, and it's not a, that's not a bug, that's a feature, that's what I'm after. The Bible teaches us that the spirit within us lusteth to envy, veers toward envy. That's again James 4. This is our natural tendency. It is a universal problem. We were born casting sidelong glances. We were born noticing that the other person got more, noticing that the other person was here first, noticing that the other person is taller, noticing that the other girl is getting more attention, noticing, you know, we've, we notice no one has to Teach us how to notice. I didn't get an invitation. You got an invitation. You got a bigger serving of ice cream. I didn't what's going on. We saw that a recognition of our complicity in this sin is the way of escape. Christ, where you look to the cross, you looked across Christ's death on the cross to deal with this sin and crucify it in you. That recognition is called repentance and it can only be found in Christ. Outside of Christ, envy is the natural condition of all mankind. Outside of Christ, envy is the environment we live in. Before we were converted, what were we like? I said just a moment ago that Paul put in two places, he put uh, malice and envy next to one another. These are the two passages. One of them is Titus 3.3. 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures. Notice this, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That is the natural condition of mankind. Malice and envy together. That is what we are like. Romans 1.29, being filled with all unrighteousness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, right? Maliciousness, full of envy. When we are brought into Christ, this does not grant us automatic immunity uh, to the sin. We still have to guard ourselves just like we have to guard ourselves with every other sin. But in, in this cultural climate, the preachers of our land aren't preaching against envy. It's, it's one of the seven deadly sins, 
But we, there's hardly anybody talking about it. And it's the sin that's tearing our country apart. It's the sin that's burning our culture down. This is the thing that's destroying us. And scarcely a voice is raised against it. We have to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and that includes death to this particular sin. For example, the godly have to be told not to envy sinners, Proverbs 3, 29 through 32, and Proverbs 23, 17 and 18. And we have to guard ourselves against sanctimonious envy, the kind that Judas tried to display in his false concern for the poor. We see that in Mark 14, 5 and 10, and John 12, 3 through 6. The woman comes and anoints Christ with an expensive ointment, and there was great indignation. Why wasn't this ointment sold and the proceeds given to the poor, said the guy who kept the treasury box that he could skim from? Why wasn't, you know, there was a medieval churchman who said, speaking frankly, the poor are a gold mine. The poor are a gold mine. We declared, we declared war on poverty back in LBJ's day, right? We could have written every poor person in the United States a check for a million dollars and called it good and been way ahead of where we are now. But the, the whole object is, if you're having a war on poverty, what must you not get rid of? Poverty. <laughs> because there's going to be a whole infrastructure, dependent people dependent for their livelihoods, careers, and jobs, fighting the eradication of poverty. And what happens if you eradicate poverty? Somebody is out of a job. So it's the, we, should, we really ought to call our welfare state the poverty perpetuation machine. That's what we're after. That's what, that's what we're doing. In striking contrast to many other sins, nobody readily admits to being envious. Envy is petty and malicious. Envy is unattractive to just about everybody. And so, in order to operate openly in the world, it has to sail under false colors. Envy is clandestine. Envy is sneaky. To admit to envy is to admit, self-consciously, to being tiny-souled, beef-jerky-hearted, petty, mean-spirited. And to admit this is dangerously close to repentance. To be out-and-out envious is to be clearly in the wrong. So, envy occupies itself much with matters of justice and it becomes a collector of injustices, both real and imagined. That's why social justice warriors want to be social justice warriors, because justice is a good word. Envy is a bad word, but envy is what's going on. Since envy cannot speak its own name, the closest virtue capable of camouflaging the sin is the zeal for justice, and so we ought to be really suspicious of that word. Biblical justice is a good thing. We ought to want, we ought to want that. But this kind of social justice, that the phrase social justice should hit you the way the phrase bone cancer does. Since true Christians should be very much concerned for true justice, be sure to run diagnostics on your own heart whenever you take up any kind of fighting cause. And this, this, this trick can afflict people on the conservative side of things as well. You can have... Um, you can have pro-lifers giving way to this kind of sin where you're, 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 you lose the objective, you lose the point, as uh, Nate was uh, describing last night. Envy gets worse as the gifts get greater. When dealing with talent, artistic temperaments, and great intellectual achievements, we sometimes assume that we can cultivate our way out of the temptation, which is the reverse of the truth. 
If envy is malicious and hateful and spiteful, and it is provoked by the good that God has given you, right? So God has blessed you, and this person over here hates you because God is blessing you, you can't fix the problem by asking God to bless you more so that they will see what a swell person you are. If God blessed you more, it would make the problem worse, not better. Do you see that? You're, you're assuming that this is an argument. This is a rational thing. It's not a rational thing. It's an irrational spite, irrational hatred. Because we're naive about this sin in ourselves and in others, we glibly assume that if God only blesses us a little bit more, that will make it clear that we are nice people and that there's no reason to envy us. But of course, that only makes everything worse. Should the neighbor in the 10th commandment assume that if God only gave him a bigger house and a faster car, this would somehow resolve the problems of his envious neighbor next door? Are you serious? Right? Your neighbor is staring at you malevolently because of the nice car you have and the nice house you have, and you think if only God gave you a bigger house, it would solve all the problems? Of course not. Of course not. If you live under the blessing of God, and you live self-consciously under the blessing of God, seeking, like uh, uh, Jabez did, more of the blessing of God, you are asking for the problem of envy to get worse. You're, you're walking right into it, and you should do it with your eyes open, and you should want to live under the blessing of God. But that's not going to make this all go away. Part of the reason this is so messy is Christians have been living under the blessing of God, and they've drawn this reaction, but then we have sort of, Oh, oh no, what what did we do wrong? There's nothing wrong. Your privileges are God's goodness to you. God has been kind to you. God has blessed you. Own it. Stand up straight. Let God be kind to you. You're, You're one of his children. Let God be kind to you. And don't apologize for God's goodness. When you apologize for God's goodness, you are doing something really, really bad. When James takes aim at conflict in the church, he takes aim at envy. So, remember that the love of Christ is forever, and envy is transient. Speaking of the earthbound, Solomon says, also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. That's in Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. Their envy is now perished, but love is forever. Love is forever. Gore Vidal, an unbelieving writer, once said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. In stark contrast to this, the Apostle Paul says, love does not envy. Love does not envy. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Our Father, gracious God, we're very grateful for your kindness to us. We thank you for all the ways you've blessed us. We, are, uh, we seek your forgiveness for feeling apologetic for the ways that you've blessed us. I pray you'd help us to own it. I pray you'd help us to, to walk in your goodness, knowing that we don't deserve any of it, and yet we rejoice in it. Father, we pray that you would help us learn how to do this, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen to all the other sessions from Grace Agenda 2021, All the Ugly Isms. Listen today on the Canon app.